Welcome everyone to this month's podcast. I'm delighted to have with me Grant Brooke, who's a startup CEO, someone who is very knowledgeable about the startup space in Kenya. This month, I want to talk about disrupting the digital space, being a startup in Kenya or in East Africa, really understanding the marketplace and trying something new. I think this is a great podcast for anyone who is trying to start a business, wants to know what to do and wants to disrupt industries or an industry that has been traditionally conservative. So Grant, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast this month. Thanks. Uh, Great to be here. Grant, you've been investing in Kenya for over 10 years or you've been in the startup space for over 10 years. First of all, what brought you to Kenya and what made you stay? Yeah, I came to Kenya first uh, while I was a, a grad student. I must have been 22 or so. And I worked on how religion impacts choice making in, in markets. Kigeme Market, uh, the Afwaki Way, was my main kind of research area. Like choice making, how, how people think about their futures or credit or, or who they do business with, separately depending on what religion or ethnic group they're traditionally from and how that changes when people move to cities. Wow, That's okay. what my academic work was on. It was um, a master's. It was actually two masters. And then I did almost all the work to my PhD. And then I started Twiga right when I was about to start defending it. So I never I never walked at Oxford to complete my PhD. Okay. Um, so all in all, that was like five years of work. And um, I ch- chose Kenya just by, by chance. Uh, a friend basically had a spare bedroom. There was also a student that let me crash there. And I was a poor 22-year-old at, at the time. Uh, we kind of have self-funding research work. And then I um, really fell in with a group of friends that I liked. I'd spent a lot of time in kind of South Texas on the Texas-Mexico border. That's where my family's from. Um, and it's not dissimilar to Kenya. It actually made a lot more sense to me than, than Oxford did as a place. So I spent most of my time in Kenya, not in the UK. And uh, one thing became another and became another. And then it's become a career. Wow. Okay. So you went so quickly. First of all, how did you even choose religion and choice making masters? What What is that? Is it social sciences? Is it, what is it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's sociology and then moved to econ. And there was a kind of one of the founders of, of sociology was an economist named Max Weber, who was German and wrote a very famous work in the early 1900s on this Protestant work ethic and how that changed how people view economics. And prior to Weber, economics was viewed by everybody was a rational actor. So you give somebody a dollar and you can pretty well predict how they're going to use that dollar. And what, what Weber stepped in and said was basically ideas in history, like can change things. The big question, the big modern question to what that means today is it's not just Kenya, it's Latin America and West Africa and so on, is that you're getting rapid urbanization and before families used to be members of Catholic Church or Presbyterian Church of East Africa or in Western Kenya you have Legio Maria or you have these different groups and people yeah. move to the cities and they yeah. tend to change to to being Pentecostal or charismatic or at the very least evangelical yeah. and part of that's just a, an institutional capacity issue in that kind of these settlements pop up and there aren't church structures there and, and, and so people just pop up and start calling themselves a, a, a pastor church. or whatever yeah. a, a yeah. church yeah and there's mm-hmm. every other building is a, is a church and then they don't have because the existing churches don't have the institutional capacity to to serve all these people yeah uh, so people start serving themselves but then the way people think about their lives and their futures uh tends to be quite different so 
one of our big questions was, you know, the prosperity gospel preachers get a lot of flack in Kenya for making themselves rich and all this yeah, kind so of the uh, stuff. Driving, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, was does that actually make people who follow them have very like near-term aspirations to that makes them wealthy? So if, if you start to view yourselves as not poor, but actually rich and just haven't like gotten your riches yet, but certainly God has blessed you, are you going to yeah. start to behave differently and take loans differently and start to act differently versus yeah. if you just pursue yourself as poor? How does that behave? Because that was very kind of core to what Max Weber saw about Puritans back in the, yeah. the 17, 1800s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we're testing this in, in modern context. I mean, there, there was some scholars doing this in Brazil, scholars doing this in West Africa, and I was kind of the one out doing this in, oh, wow. in, in okay. East Africa. Mm -hmm. And because of that, um, I just ended up spending all my time hanging out in an informal market with food vendors and furniture makers and, and folks like that to yeah. understand their lives and their, their livelihoods. And I think the very interesting kind of that I learned in that was that no, pe people don't do particularly better when they when they go to these churches and, and largely it's because the kind of denominational churches people tend to come and they have tight social groups that look out for them yeah mm -hmm. uh, um, especially like a lot of furniture makers would be legio maria and they would share tools and they would make sure people don't fall off in it while the kind of pentecostals would like be out on their own and be like i'm going to make it i'm going to make it and they'd switch churches every six months they didn't have the social groups kind of support them in their newfound endeavors yeah. as much mm -hmm. as the people that had really tight networks did and that we would call in social science resiliency networks are the people who would outperform economically really so i would yeah. think that the evangelical churches have actually brought in a sense of being rich is good the pastor is wealthy it's a very opulent lifestyle yeah. that people should live and that's not the case that's what you're saying well that's kind of the, the, the mentality they get, but just the propensity to kind of fall apart by stealing from one another or oh, okay. like like the, their propensity to like just all those networks dissolve is very, very high. I see. Um, so it's not long lasting. Yeah, exactly. And really what you need to do to survive well in a, a low income space is to have a group of people that, that have your back and to to really support you and, and to grow together. Um, it's really the kind of the, the secret sauce here. Amazing. So that will take us nicely into Shara, but we've moved yeah. 10 steps ahead of ourselves. So yeah. what made you stay, I guess, is the networks that you had propelling you further. What made you interested uh, in Twiga getting into yeah. uh, agricultural farming and, you know, d disrupting that yeah. space? What, ma what made you get into that? So two things. One, one's personally in, in that I um, was basically writing up my academic work from Nairobi Garage. I'd taken out of desks there. It was just surrounded by people starting things in the like 2012, 2013, 2014 period. Uh, yeah. So all of my friends were entrepreneurs and kind of that early wave of new tech interventions in Kenya. And secondly, is I really didn't like academia. And like there's a saying that the, the fights are very big because the stakes are so small that yeah. you that, that just felt like you'd write something and 100 people would read it maybe um, as an article yeah. and it just mm -hmm. had no impact. Mm -hmm. And third, I, I was, and, and this is still how I treat entrepreneurship, um, is really these are all experiments. 
And I'd become friends with Peter, who um, was my co-founder at, at Twiga, and at that time was GM of Coca-Cola for East Africa. And I, I decided I want to stay in Kenya and do something in entrepreneurship. And Peter and I were just meeting regularly, talking about things that we could do together. This yeah. Point, we were pretty good friends. Yeah. And it had come to a, a thesis that there's a lot of government and NGO attention to farmers and making yeah. sure farmers have better seed and making sure farmers have better fertilizer and, and this yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But very, very little attention was given to the consumers. And what we know demographically is now the, the majority of Kenyans are consumers, not not producers of food. And they're spending half their income on food. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then when you go and you speak to farmers, what farmers would tell you is basically, you know, I do all these things. I would go buy good fertilizer and I'd put in irrigation. I do all, all this if I could just get a market. And you look at Nairobi and you're like, well, there's a market. There's a market everywhere. Why Why is everybody saying I need a market when there's food everywhere being sold? What is the broken nature of things mm-hmm. here? And so then Peter and I were having these regular meetings and we came across a basic question of what if we treated just bananas at that point, like Coke treats Coke. And because Coke doesn't have a, a market access problem, they, they have hundreds of thousands of stores buying their product Mm -hmm. and kind of reframed i think how people at that time viewed the problem of agricultural um, production in kenya to be a a buy side problem not a supply problem and say if we could get thousands of food vendors collectively purchasing together and represent that purchasing power to suppliers then Mm -hmm. suppliers could start to arrange themselves behind that guaranteed purchasing power to actually build businesses because yes. when when we're in a world of you know 200,000 food outlets around Nairobi single sourcing all all buying their own product and that leads that extreme fragmentation on the retail side leads to extreme fragmentation on the production side so Correct. you would yeah. be nuts to plant a 100 acre banana farm hoping that brokers buying 2 3 tons a day are, are going to show up at your gate and buy these and take them forever. It's just, you wouldn't put in the tens of millions of shillings of finance it takes yeah. to, to build out that farm with yeah. that much uncertainty. And of course, banks don't enter that space because there's so much uncertainty. Of exactly. course, like yeah. it, it creates all these knock-on effects that all start because the buy side of the market is fragmented. So it, it just started as an experiment in one estate was with bananas, was what, what happened if we kind of defragmented the buy side of the market, could we create a better proposition for for producers here um, and went, went from there. So basically you started the business. Oh, first of all, one question I had is amongst uh, the people that you were in the startup buzz 2012 to 20, are you the one that's done the best? And can you uh, name some of them? Yeah. So we started in late 2014 and now there's been a lot of good performers out there. So we are a couple of years behind in COPA. Uh, which has done okay. well. Delia Lint was already in existence, which which has okay. done very well. Yes. Um, yeah. And Af- Africa's Talking, I think, probably started about the same time and, yeah. and has done well. <laughs> then Cindy um, also was almost the exact same time. Okay. And Moringa Schools was around the same period as well. Um, and I think Bridge Schools had already started. And those were Bridge kind of the yes, Bridge mm-hmm. International, which wasn't really part of our community there. They did yeah. their own thing. Yeah, but similar to because those are the ones that kind of came out of that era, I think. Oh, great. So these are businesses that are still flourishing today and are doing very well. The second thing I wanted to ask you, when you saw that when you saw that it was going somewhere, was it a start from scratch with you and, and Peter together and no one else? You put in your own capital, etc. Yeah. So so I was still surviving off of like makes of grants and student loans and what consultancies I could get for yeah. 
about the first year. Peter was kind of helping pay the monthly bills just out of his his pocket, and ultimately yeah. uh, Tina, his wife, let let him sell their house in in Karen to to finance us. And wow. at that point. We had never heard of venture capital. I guess I would have heard it from the press, but didn't know it was in East Africa. Didn't know anything about this. Yeah, and we could almost get the company to be profitable each month, so it wasn't taking huge losses, but not quite. Definitely couldn't use our own resources to make it large. And like I just described, the problem we had understood the problem was a problem of law of large numbers. The the problem of agricultural markets gets easier to fix the more yeah. people you have buy on the buy side. Mm -hmm. um, of that, and it takes time because it's agriculture for farmers to build farms and, and arrange behind you and to put investment in and, and so on. So it must have been about 18 months before we took in external capital and probably worked on it for nine months because it's such early days. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we might have been the first convertible note in, in East Africa, oh, cool. Africa at that point. So everything had to be figured out. Um, so many, so many questions um, are coming from that. But yeah. first of all, yeah. do you think for someone who's a foreigner coming into the country, trying to do something new, was it a difficult venture or is it, is it something that because you met Peter, it just made sense? Would you have been able yeah. to do it on your own? Oh, no, not at all. First, it was a crazy I mean, without, without, without a local, I mean. A crazy company to start in general, like uh, whether you're a local or, or a foreigner, like a yeah. very, very hard problem to tackle. Now, now I'm more interested in easier problems, but it's, it's kind of like, oh, we're going to take on the agriculture sector. It's like a big thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, no one and would, would really, do that voluntarily anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of didn't, it wasn't planned is the other thing. First, it was like an experiment with bananas in one estate and maybe you can get this to profitable. It wasn't, it wasn't until maybe three, four years down the line that we, I mean, Twiga now has its own brand of rice. It has its own brand of, of Flower. It's rolling out its own brand of all these. I, it, it, we 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 weren't thinking about that stuff at, at mm -hmm. this time. It was just going. It was just day by day moving forward, uh, kind of understanding what we could be. And without Peter had no like how to hire. It ended up that we hired a bunch of basically St. Mary's grads who all knew each other and had these long histories. And because they had histories together, we could trust everybody. In the early days of the business, there was lots of cash just flowing around. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it was. Is just running on trust a lot mm -hmm. and, and people didn't take advantage of that i think if i would have just been me it would have been had in a, in a couple seconds and chased <laughs> out yeah. yeah yeah amazing but let me come back to you as a person i've looked at your tweets i'm not on twitter myself but i've looked at it it's, i mean it's quite it's quite entertaining to be honest and i learned from that <laughs> you don't do well on caffeine yeah you had elbow surgery recently i saw you doing push-ups uh, on some video, like is it yeah. arms, not push-ups? Uh, uh, pull-ups. Uh, I'm back in. Pull-ups. Yeah. Tell us one thing that we wouldn't know about you, like no one would know necessarily from Twitter or from the business world. I went to seminary, like uh, so. I also had to take classes on how to preach, and I had to learn like ancient Greek and take counseling classes and and you do know, stuff like that. You're really not the first guest who has had a past with seminary school or divinity school or, or yeah. thought of going to become a preacher. You're really not. You're maybe the third person who's who's told us that. So that's quite interesting. Were you religious to start with, or did you grow up in a religious family? Yeah, uh, we were Presbyterian. I wouldn't I wouldn't say we were like um, Bible beaters or anything like that. And I think when I went to school for it, it was much more of an academic endeavor than it was with the intent of ever going into ministry. We thought about it once or twice, but uh, just 
what really was far uh, more interested in academics. What did the experience in Kenya and the experience of the, I'm sure you must have attended a few churches in, in Nairobi. Yeah. Um, what did what did they what did they teach you about religion? So my experience of of Kenyan churches was with these years of academic research. With every Sunday, I basically go to one of these churches that's in it made of sheet metal. Uh, yeah. That, that has like one the Maba- PA system. The Mabati, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the Mabati thing with the PA system. They turn up as loud as possible. Yes. And sit in the back. And I frankly I have a lot of respect for people that are able to that, that sit through that every Sunday because it is <laughs> it's four or five hours of pretty repetitive yep. uh, stuff going on. The more interesting services were the ones that were more like the, um, the services that would blend traditional beliefs and like modern beliefs or Catholic beliefs from Western Kenya. Th- those are more fascinating because there is some like history and content and, and such there uh, as yeah. opposed to somebody with a keyboard. Um, <laughs> But I think I had gone to very kind of stilted churches growing up, kind of what we call high steeple churches, like like our downtown Nairobi now in in traditional churches. The hierarchical ones. The hierarchical ones where you sing hymns, where there's a, a proper clergy. And I think if anything, I walked away with a bigger appreciation of how much all of this is in service to the parishioners' needs. Like, regardless of if you have a keyboard where you're using the autoplay setting to, yeah. to just play the same loop of music over and over again, or you have somebody who trained with organ in, uh, in Germany for, for years and years to come lead a choir. Like, the ultimate goals at the end of this are very much the same, to provide some in- interconnectivity, to connect people to a past and, and a future. And yeah, being kind of thrown into a completely different circumstance than one I had. You're sitting there wondering, what is this doing for these people here? And you're asking that question. And it turns out it's, it's very similar to what, what church worked out for me going forward, even though it's looked quite different. Amazing. Okay, so now you you set up Twiga. You and Peter are barely making it, or or making somewhat of a profit, or just establishing yourself. What hurdles did you face when you were setting up that really challenged you in your startup culture? So so many. Like, give us the highlight. The most difficult. Yeah, I think the the most difficult one comes to my is. So about eighteen months in, we do our seed round of investment, and I'd gone to the U.S. and pitched Twiga and we had won this 1776 Challenge Cup and it was a big deal. Let me ask you Grant, how did you know how to yeah. do that? How did you know as a startup how to oh, approach investors? How, how I did it. Get, yeah, okay. How did you get to know yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Um, so here, so 1776 was a VC firm that um, went to like 60 cities across the world and basically had a local pitch competition and then they selected local winners from each thing. We were very young at the time and everybody was pitching and I got up, I, I did like food economics before. So I get up and I start talking about banana economics and, yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's not till we get to the last slide and our, our revenues are really high. And yep. I hadn't appreciated this. They're much higher than all the other startups, C-stage startups, startups yeah. here. Mm-hmm. We lost one of the judges, it was local judges of the 1776 pulled me aside. I forgot who it was. I basically said that we didn't really believe your revenue numbers when they cut and I'm like, well, they are what they are. We sell, <laughs> we sell bananas. Like they're popular. Look, go down the street and you'll see lots of bananas. Then the CEO of 1776 pulled me aside after the event and, and said that basically they'd like 
to figure out inviting us to DC for the global competition, even though we didn't win the local competition because they had these lottery slots available. And he was like, but you have to change how you're pitching uh, the business. And he walked through how to kind of reconstruct uh, the pitch to not yeah. be talk talking about like theories about economics yeah. to be like, this is how you become the largest wholesaler of all foodstuffs in East Africa. And this is how big of a market that is. And this yeah. is what our traction looks like. And, and yeah. to reframe that. So yeah. I had like a three month crash course to prepare for that event in DC to figure this all out yeah. and worked a lot on it and drilled in front of people that I could. And then I, to our kind of stunning surprise, we won the whole thing. Amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And that was really our crash course in venture capital. Yeah. I yeah. do think that there are opportunities in Nairobi sometimes that because you're not in a sophisticated market, you do get an advantage that you wouldn't if you were in the States. No one would take the time to, to talk you through that kind of thing if you were in, in America, probably. And so yeah. that opportunity itself, amazing. Yeah, it was really kind to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And really kind. It was really kind of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so talk us through the, the hurdles and the hardest times. So when 1776 invested, it, it, a, it took us like a year to figure out how to close the th this round. We won this commitment to invest. I think they had committed to like $350,000, but we wanted to include some other investors, some local PE funds that I won't name, tried <laughs> to invest on the terms and they were just like, let's say listed local PE firms and they were just a mess. Uh, in terms of their terms and the, the 776 guys came in, they were like, what are you thinking? Like, why would you ever sign this kind of uh, agreement to do this? So we, so. Amazing. Um, so they were helping you figure out what the yeah. investment portfolio could look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because at, at that point, I think the, the basic legal agreements that, that startups in Kenya were getting from Kenyan investors, funds and, and angel investors are just basically make the companies uninvestable for for foreign investors yes. they do things like they take management control they have like weird tranching they have kpis built within it like all kinds of things to de-risk a seed round for, yeah, because, it's just crazy to do that the investment for local investment they want to make sure that yeah. they can get a return on their investment not necessarily yeah. considering how attractive the company will be to future investors yeah the outcome of that is it just kills companies yeah. Um, so either either it forces seed stage companies to go profitable or it makes follow on investors just makes them untouchable because you look at a cap table and some local investor will have 50% of the company when you want founders to be running the company. So after we went through that whole drama of not being able to work with really local investors because yeah. they couldn't agree on the same terms, we ended up bringing in DOB, which has a local office and Omidyar, which Ori from Oriokolo helped lead and yeah. on more kind of global standard terms here okay. and then we closed the round and, and we were chase bank customers so maybe six months later or, or oh, six weeks no. after we closed the round uh just the money was all gone oh uh, no from it. yeah we lost all the money and then i had to like get up the next morning and start raising the 1.7 million dollars that we had just raised all over again how did you explain it to are they 776 1776 and omidyar and dob like we just this is what happened and this was i mean this was theirs and some of the others first investment into africa and, and right right away the bank goes under like this and this doesn't happen in u.s markets or european markets or at where least you, the, the like, insurance uh, covers that and you know that you're going to get it you yeah. know pretty quickly mm -hmm. yeah i don't it's, i think it's been 
it might be since the 1930s since every, people have actually used depositors insurance yes. here. So just an unfathomable thing. That so, is horrible. What, what did you do? As in, where did you summon up the wherewithal to really, you know, start again on the next day? Some investors, particularly DOB, stepped in right away and said, "We'll get you debt to keep the company liquid, uh, so we can just pay salaries and, and pay bills to keep marching forward." And we knew we had the company was doing really well. It was growing quickly, and you know, it has drop startup dramas. Uh, yeah. But the the basic principle was good. And then thankfully, like almost everybody who participated in that the initial round just doubled up, went again into Amazing. it, and we were able to. Yeah. Mm. So we had to take some extra dilution because you took in extra capital, but it ended up yeah. not being that punitive to us. At the end of the day, people were very reasonable uh, mm. about the whole thing. We survived. And I think a startup, we had a lot of kind of close calls at Twiga. And I think your culture is so much better defined by your near death moments than your success moments in a company. Like pulling the team together and me learning as a leader at that time, pulling the team together and just telling them, remember like an all hands meeting during this time where it's like, guys, I have to like go away for a month now and fix this finance problem. Yeah. I have this under control. If you guys have the company running under control, let me handle this one. And doing that over and over again, other team members, our COOs, other instances where we're having near death experience, yeah. like mm -hmm. step up and say, I got this. You learn mm -hmm. how to trust one another and you build something together over the years, kind of out of dirt that builds a great culture. So Twiga is- That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, that from my experience with, with Twiga and the advice that I give to all of my clients um, and investee companies looking for funding is really to keep your books clean and, and, you know, the records should be, you know, spit spot. What advice would you give to other investee companies looking for funding? Yeah, 100% hygiene matters. And regardless of what I do, I ask for monthly board meetings and reports and accounts of any company I run because I like the forcing mechanism of having to be uh, having to report once a month but also the hygiene of the company matters a lot. Yeah. Second, in a market where Kenya, where there's constantly rumors of corruption going around, from day one, setting a standard, this is culturally, it's not not just not who we are, but something mm -hmm. that we are vehemently against. There was another day at Twiga where I was arrested and put in jail for a day for, for refusing. A driver had gotten arrested and the police kept shaking them down. And I, I uh, showed up at the police station accusing the cops of extortion here. And their reaction was to throw me in jail for creating a disturbance at the police station. It's the best cultural thing I could do because we were a very young company and it set the standard that, that if the CEO takes bribery, this seriously, we, we all can put ourselves on the line to take okay, bribery. Which jail cell was it? And um, was, how did we get out? I think that would be Kilimani Police Station. Kilimani Police Station. Uh, okay. Yeah, right across the road from Kibera. It I'm was sure just one night. No, I, I got out by, by, by like 10 or 11 p.m. So I didn't have to spend the night in there. But I was thrown in like at, like at 10 a.m. How did so you it was get a out? Full, um, so at the time, Peter's wife was head of legal at Safaricom and knew a bunch of lawyers. And there was like just a steady wave of lawyers coming and Wolfing sitting with the police yeah. chief. Yeah, police chief. And then a bunch of Twiga employees had shown up and basically congregated in the in the area. So it, U.S. Embassy called the police station. It, basically, we <laughs> created so much ruckus at the police station that they realized their cost of keeping me was much higher than their uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, their cost of letting me go. <laughs> um, so, so they sent me on my way and it was like, never come back. Uh, just That's leave us alone. A very important cultural lesson, and I think a very important one uh, for any CEO coming into the country. Yes, those are things that we'll, we have to deal with on a daily basis and uh, showing that we're not going to be susceptible to that 
uh, is very important. So yes, agreed on that. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Twiga has great relationship with the agriculture ministry and in our other kind of regulatory bodies because we set yeah. those standards early and mm -hmm. people know they can come and work with us and their brand is not going to be tarnished that they can show this as moving the needle in agriculture by associating the government with us. Mm -hmm. And if people can win by associating themselves with you without having to be corrupt in doing so, they'll take advantage of that. Like we have tried to make it a win-win situation for, for everybody here. So hygiene and standards. The, the, another thing that I see a lot of kind of seed stage startups do is they raise their seed round, let's say a million dollars and they continue to behave like they're bootstrapping. So they try to make that cash last as long as possible. Yeah. So they, yeah. And they either try to go profitable or they try to make it like three, four years of runway. And when we closed our seed round, I basically told everybody like, I'm going to go spend this on hiring the best talent that we can find and paying them yeah. above market price to go and yeah. find these folks. And if it mm -hmm. works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But mm -hmm. I don't want to do this at the cost of like not giving it a proper shot. So for us, that looked like going out and paying a, a whole crew of people at that time, seven, $8,000 a month, which was high in the market, very, very mm -hmm. high at the market for startup salaries. Mm -hmm. um, but really taking our shot and saying that if this doesn't work in the next 18 months, it's, yeah. it's not going to work, but we're going to do it with great talent. And then we're going to have to fundraise again at the end of that period. Yeah. And so plan out your capital. Don't just plan for, for like this round that you're doing. Plan out your capital trajectory over a few years um, yeah. here and get the people in the door, mostly talent that it takes to give yourself the best shot of, of yeah. the thing panning out. Yeah. Do you think it's strategy rather than the idea or do you think it's the idea? Because some startups are struggling because uh, their idea is not floatable or at least investors are, in, are not interested in yeah. it. Yeah, no, ideas are cheap. Like and one of my jobs as a CEO is to make ideas as cheap as possible. So on Wednesdays, we do what ifs where everybody is supposed to bring in a what if we do this and it can be as crazy as let's launch a satellite to like maybe if we move <laughs> this button the app to be this color like yeah. it can be all over the map my goal there is not to necessarily take those what ifs and and make them operational it's to make ideas as cheap as possible and as low stake as possible for everybody so yeah. everybody's very free-flowing about yeah. what ideas they have execution is matters a lot lot more, a lot more. than yeah. than ideas mm -hmm. the thing that matters most is not the idea, but the the problem that you're trying to solve. Are you thinking about the problem differently? So we go viewed the problem of agriculture differently than everybody did at that period of time, which was about a buy side problem, not a not a sell side problem. Shara, what I've been kind of experimenting on and working on for the last year, views a problem of how credit flows in markets very differently than incumbent banks or um, mobile lenders. When I'm like angel investing in a startup, I'm much more interested in how do they, what thing in the world have they found that's, that needs to work better? Yeah. And mm -hmm. what is their theory of why it's not working and, and what needs to change about that than the tactic, like the ideas of how to go about it. So because this Twigo was your first business, how do you know all of these things? How do you know that ideas are cheap? How do you know that hygiene is important? Did you oh. do a lot of reading? Did you do a, Did you have a lot of guidance from Peter? Yeah. What was it? Because you're young, you're getting a startup and getting $350,000 to start with. How are you managing all of this and not going crazy at, where was that place that people used to go? Is it Alchemist? Yeah. Oh, no, these days it was Brew Bistro and Gong Road. Oh, Brew Bistro, uh, yeah. Yeah, before they moved to Westland. No, I learned so much, like uh, trying to be like a, a sponge. So I learned a lot from Peter. 
I learned a lot from just, I would just watch YouTube video after YouTube video of Y Combinator, or famous VCs giving talks or the yeah. founders of Airbnb, just anything I could get my hands on to learn here. And for that first two years, I was just consuming as much information and books and such as I, I, I could get my hands on. Now, I think I probably could have built Twiga twice as fast had I known what I was doing uh, along, along the way. Now I'm a, I'm a lot more confident in how to lead a team and, and what my role is in that, in our kind of own culture and ecosystem and kind of have my own way of working. But it's taken, what are we in, eight years uh, now of being a leader to kind of craft that identity and know what works for me. That, that is um, took a, a relatively yeah. short time to yeah. develop a, a leadership style and also to lead a successful startup. So well done on that. Let's talk about Shara then. This is your new venture. Could you explain it to our audience? Yeah, so Shara is really still an experiment and is such early days. But when I left Twiga, fortunately Peter and a lot of backers at Twiga were willing to support me and what I kind of wanted to work on next. Like I said, I'm far more interested in questions than outcomes. And the thing that's fascinated me since my research days and at Twiga has been the credit in informal markets works really well in the informal market. So people are used to like telling their mom and boga, I, I, I'll pay you when I get my pay at the end of the month. Well, or, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'll pay you. Or I'll, I'll um, or you, you go to a fundi and, and say, can I buy this couch over two, three months? Because it, it would be my whole paycheck over one month. Or that furniture maker going to his timber supplier and saying, I'll, I'll pay for this timber as soon as the guy who is buying me my couch pays for my couch. Like credit works really well in these settings. And one of the things I know from Twiga, so Twiga, um, about half of the business is fast moving consumer goods, flour, sugar, rice, and, and so on. So our competition is often local, like neighborhood-based distributors mm -hmm. who maybe service a hundred kiosks or so. And what we would see margins on those kind of products are very low. They're maybe three, 4%. And we'd see they do like 60% of their sales on credit. So, you know, if your margins are that low and you're doing that much on credit, you're like a much better lender than even the banks where they have like 15% default rates now at some of the banks. You know, these guys are doing a really good job of being financial institutions. So the thesis behind Char has been that there's the vast number of businesses, small businesses in Kenya, there's credit floating around. Sometimes the businesses don't even know it. Sometimes when you walk up to them and ask them if they give credit, they'll say, no, 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 but only to, you know, my friends and family. And then you ask them, well, what percent of your clients are friends and family? And they'll be like, well, when they do the math, it's actually like 30% of their clients are yeah, people yeah, that they know really well. So the, the question behind Char has been, these SMEs are really efficient lenders, but that data, doesn't exist or it exists in their heads or sometimes it exists in a little black book. If we could understand that data and we could get them capital that they would treat as their own capital, we could be a much better financial service provider than all the plethora of apps that you can download from the store. We could, we would have much lower default rates. We would know what transactions are for. We would be tied to businesses and so on. So what we've been experimenting on for that past year is getting um, now we're approaching about a thousand SMEs, forms of finance to finance their consumers on different terms and let the SMEs kind of do with microfinance. It used to be called peer selection and peer monitoring. Let the SMEs choose 
who do they want to give finance to, and then make sure those people pay. So it kind of combines what used to happen in microfinance, where you get groups of people meeting together, deciding we're going to finance Bob to go get a motorbike, and then I'm going to make sure Bob pays because next month I want finance to buy an ice machine or whatever it is, with the digital interventions that we've seen from Branch and Tala, but we're really quite blunt force consumer objects with really high interest rates. So mm -hmm. if we can combine these two, we can use the tech interventions that Branch and Tala and Amshwari and so on mm -hmm. have used, but we can lower interest rates by using the communal aspect to to define how people are, are getting finance. So actually, um, um, bringing it full circle, if you're theory if your master's theory is correct then what yeah. you're saying is a community of people sharing the same values will do much better in promoting themselves and promoting each other than if it was disparate people uh, coming from different places uh, absolutely so like the difference between going to the play store and downloading an app and saying i get this small loan and then if i pay it back i'll get bigger loans over time when yeah. you do that 50 percent of people default the first time yeah there's versus no accountability somebody from there's no accountability versus two people needing a transaction to work because you have an SME who's giving you finance and you have a consumer who wants that that object but also wants to maintain their reputation. Is a step change a difference in how, how finance works here? But it requires building like a social network combined with the financial engine. Yeah, amazing. So that's what you're doing. You're now in Nigeria and also in Kenya. Uh, first of all, why Nigeria? And how do you see the future of this uh, new venture going? What's next? Yeah, I mean, it's still... So the reason we're in Nigeria and Kenya, we're actually set up to go in Zimbabwe as well, but they turned off their USD mobile money. It's because mm -hmm. we suspect this is a problem that's fairly repeated across growth economies. We wanted to have beta user cohorts that represented several different demographics here to see beta user cohort uh, user cohort that's just your your it's just that you the product's not fully out of the box not everybody can download it you're just with a, a select number of users while you're working on iterating on the product to, to get it right for how those users work so we wanted to make sure that those samples those cohort groups were broadly representative across several different markets in order so we know the product is broadly applicable here yeah. that was the reason to go in in a few different markets and you know right now it's still like early days and we haven't we have a lot of product work to do to get this right we can tell that this is going to be a better form of finance we, we have the data now to say how this is going yeah and the thesis is is working but we still just have a, a lot of building work to do and a, and a lot of we have to hire a lot. We have to operationalize a lot, like for this to kind of stand up as a, as a, as a company. Yeah, I've seen your hiring spree and yeah. you talked a lot about the culture of Shara. Yeah. Tell us what is the culture of Shara? What I wanted, just personally, what, what I wanted when I set out to do a, a new project is one of the privileges of building your own startup is you get to find what work is for you and for your team. And you get to define whether you enjoy your life or not. Like these are your choices. So I really want to wake up and work on problems I'm fascinated by with people I enjoy working on them with. And I don't want to do the things like have employees that I have to chase for all their work and say, why didn't you do this right? Why didn't you do that? I don't want to grade homework. I want to be inspired by the people I work with. Amazing. So as everyone, as do all of us, to be honest. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So the culture of Shara really starts with my own personal needs here. Uh, don't have to do this, like uh, like uh, doing this because I need something to do. And if I'm going to do it, I want to have fun. And I really want to yeah. feel like we're making impact yeah. Yeah. in doing it. Thank you for that. And then what I wanted to know is um, with the advent of the Kenyan elections, risky political moves, Africa Free Trade Continental Trade Agreement, 
are those things that you're thinking about in the near future is africa where it is for you long term yeah i think i think africa's the most interesting growth market there is and as we're we're entering a period of kind of low single digit growth in developed markets then you look at a continent where just so much infrastructure needs to be built and by yeah. infrastructure i don't mean roads and power lines i mean infrastructure in terms of how payments work, how people communicate. I we I, I run into users all the time who are using LinkedIn to promote their kiosk. And as I wrote, LinkedIn is not a product intended for that, but there is no African yeah. equivalent of a SME or sole proprietor-based social network here. I yeah. mean, Fundies, who like Pinterest is the third or fourth most popular app right now in the Fundi market. And they're looking at what people are building in the wet and like trying to copy these things. But how are they sharing what they're doing? There's just so much communication and infrastructure tools to be built yeah, um, here yeah. and financial mm -hmm. tools to be built mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. I think it's an amazing time to be building uh, products across the continent. And I think we're starting to see just a flood of global venture money coming in and, and respecting that this is, it's not even the next big thing. I mean, we're already starting to see numbers and valuations being treated like this is real in here. So it's been, for me, I know that it was decades before me going on, but for me, it's been about a decade's worth of work kind of seeing this ecosystem develop and building on the continent. Now it just feels like it's exponential and and how quickly things are happening. That's amazing. And we are honored to be working with you and we're honored to see where it's going to go. Grant, I want to say thank you so much for taking us through and teaching us so much in such a short period of time. I've learned a lot about you. I've learned a lot about the business. And so I just want to say thank you for your time. Everyone, this has been Grant uh, Brooke, CEO founder of Twiga Foods and Shara. Um, as usual, we have been honored to have him on as our guest. Thank you for taking the time, Grant. For our audience, this has been a very special one and see you in September. <laughs>